hello fellow teachers and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox and I want to thank you for joining me this week as we study Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 10. Remember that my goal is to help you to be a better teacher or a better student of the scriptures to help you to see the relevance, the wisdom, and the power of the scriptures. And I pray that the Spirit will be with us as we take a look at some stories and teachings from these two great chapters. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now for an icebreaker to our first section of scripture, begin by asking some who is the greatest questions. So for example, you could ask who's considered to be the greatest baseball player of all time, or football player, or basketball player. You know, is it is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James, for example? Uh, and you can just kind of have a, a discussion back and forth uh, about that for a minute. Uh, who's the greatest investor? It's a Warren Buffett. Uh, who's considered to be the greatest president of all time? Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Roosevelt. Uh, just any number of categories that you'd like to choose. And then make the point that we live in a society that is obsessed with who's the best. And who is considered to be the greatest. And we do all kinds of things to, to honor these people that we regard so highly. Who goes into the Hall of Fame and who gets all the awards? We give these people our money. We wear their names on our shirts. We are preoccupied with greatness. Now, the people of Jesus' day were no different. Uh, so I guess it's, it's just kind of human nature. Even the early apostles were gripped by this idea. And they had a, who is the greatest question of their own? Can you find that question in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5? They asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And to answer their question, Jesus showed them an object lesson. And what was that object lesson? He finds a little child and places them right in the middle of the crowd and says, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. Now that probably would have been a bit humbling for the apostles, wouldn't it? This little child. And they might ask, why? Uh, what do you mean, Lord? Uh, children, uh, they have no ambition. Uh, they have no status, no fortune, no power, no, no expertise. What makes them so great? What do they have? And that's the real question, isn't it? Why would Jesus say this? And not only does he tell them that little children are the greatest in his kingdom, but he charges them to be like them, to aspire to their qualities. And we need to keep in mind here that Jesus is asking us to be childlike and not childish. There's a significant difference there. There are probably some qualities that you could come up with about children that may not be positive. Uh, we're not interested in those. We're looking for the positive qualities that little children possess, that Christ would have all of us develop. And personally, I believe that there are many more positive qualities in little children than there are negative ones. And what are some of those qualities? And that's the activity. Brainstorm that with your class. And allow me to share you some of my own. We'll begin with the specific quality that Jesus mentions about little children. Little children are humble. I don't think little children get too worked up about status or climbing the ladder of success or, or being in charge. Little children recognize that they don't have all the answers and, and that they need help with things. They're always watching and learning from the people around them. We too would do well to, to be humble enough to look to our Father in Heaven and our older brother for help and inspiration. We've got to be humble enough to recognize that we may not have all the answers. As opposed to being like, teenagers 
maybe sometimes who, who start to question everything or challenge the older generation or feel like they've got it all figured out. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is humble like a little child. They're willing to say, lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Little children are innocent. They're pure and blameless before God. You know, we could sit around and argue like the early apostles did about who's the greatest in our ward or our community. And arguments could be made like, well, I've been a bishop or a Relief Society president. I served a mission and I baptized this many people. I've never given in to such and such a sin, etc. And we could debate all our qualifications, our worthiness, and our accolades. And then all it would take would be for a six-year-old to walk into the middle of all of us and say, well, I'm sinless. And who can really compete with that? And we too should seek to be innocent and pure like little children. And we can, you know, if we apply the atonement of Jesus Christ in our lives. Little children are loving. Love just seems to come easily and naturally to them. One of my favorite things about being a father was when my children were little and they would say goodnight to me. And they'd reach their little arms up around my neck and, and say with such sincerity and sweetness, I love you, Daddy. And give me a big kiss on the cheek. And it just, it just melts your heart, right? Children can be so loving. And I think Christ would have us be that way as we seek to love God and love our fellow man. Little children are trusting. If you tell them about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy, they'll believe you. If you tell them to jump and you'll catch them, they'll jump without even thinking, knowing that you would never ask them to do something that would hurt them. I've taken my children rock climbing and rappelling at very young ages, and they trust me. I find them more trusting than teenagers and adults that I've taken out. Some will refuse to go over the edge. Uh, they just, they don't trust that they'll be safe. But little children... Oh, okay, you say it's safe, then it must be. We too need to develop that childlike faith in our Heavenly Father and His instructions and His commandments. You want me to do such and such, Lord? Live with such and such a commandment and, and make this kind of sacrifice? I'll do it uh, because I believe you. You would never ask me to do something that wasn't right. And one of my favorite qualities that little children possess is that they are eager to volunteer. If I walked into the primary or a classroom full of six and seven-year-olds and said, all right, kids, I need a volunteer, what would they do? You know what they would do. They would jump up and down and raise their hands and get up on their chairs and, and they'd say, oh, pick me, pick me. I want to do it. Please, please pick me. I believe our Heavenly Father would like us to have that same eagerness to volunteer when He calls on us to, to serve in callings, to, to perform some act of service, to keep one of His commandments. I know that a lot of young men and young women are like that when they're called to serve missions. And they raise their hands and they say, like little children, pick me, pick me, I'll go. And we too should strive to be eager to volunteer. Little children have no prejudice or judgment. If I were to take a black child and a Hispanic child and a white child and an Asian child, a child from a rich family, a child from a poor family, a Christian child, a Jewish child, a Muslim child, and I put them all into one room full of toys, what do you think they would do? Would they divide up into little cliques? Or look mistrustingly at, at those who were different than them? Start persecuting those they felt that they were better than? No, they'd just play. I don't think they'd care about any of those differences. Now, they might worry about who got what toy, but, but I don't think it would even register in their mind that those other children were different in any way. 
They wouldn't be thinking about all those labels that we adults seem to worry about so much. We can strive to be like little children in this too. Little children are forgiving. I remember when my children were little and it, maybe I'd put my son into timeout for bad behavior. And he'd be really frustrated and angry and fuming. And then five minutes later, it was as if nothing had ever happened. He, he'd get into a fight with one of their siblings. And, and then again, in minutes, all water under the bridge. Little children are quick to forgive, and so should we. Little children are filled with joy. There's something wonderful about a child's approach to life. They, they've, there's a, a freshness in them that, that's healing. It instills hope in the weariest of hearts. They tend to live in the now. They don't get too worried or worked up about the past or the future. They just seize life with vigor and excitement every day. They're not worried about schedules and deadlines and bills. But they just find joy in the simple things around them. The playground, dessert, cartoons, recess, coloring, playing with toys. Maybe we could live a little more like that. Find joy in the simple things. Men are that they might have joy. And then finally, my favorite quality about little children that I think God wants us to develop is that they love to imitate. And I can think of many instances where my children would come and do the exact same things that I was doing. I believe I've shared this with you before, but I remember going out to mow the lawn one day. And here comes my little son with his plastic lawnmower. And, and he followed my exact motions in getting everything ready. I filled it up with gas. And so he pretended to fill his up with, with his sippy cup. I, I pulled the cord. His didn't even have a cord, but he pretended to pull a cord. And then... He just walked five feet behind me with his plastic lawnmower, making the exact same movements that I made across the lawn, back and forth, back and forth. Well, I believe our Heavenly Father wants us to learn to imitate in the same way. Bruce R. McConkie once said that perfect worship is emulation. We honor those whom we imitate. And remember what Christ said, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. So if we want to be childlike, we should look to Jesus Christ as our perfect example and seek to imitate him. Now your students may come up with some others, but that list could at least get you thinking or, or provide you with some examples to get them started. And another quick teaching idea here. There's a fun little video that you could show your classes that, that, that's a little bit old, but it's really delightful, and, and my students have always enjoyed it when I've, when I've shown it to them. It's called The Mouths of Babes, church classic. And what it is, is uh, there's an interviewer who asks little children, members of the church, gospel questions. And some of the stuff they say is just, is just hilarious. And some of it's sweet, and some of their answers are, are quite profound. You get the sense that these little children possess many of the qualities that we just discussed. So I was able to actually find this video on YouTube, and I'll provide a link to it here and in the video description below. And if you haven't ever seen it before, you're in for a treat. The truth here, simply put, if I wish to enter into the kingdom of heaven, I must become as a little child. I've got to develop childlike qualities. To liken the scriptures, which of the qualities on our list do you feel you should work on? To conclude, I'd like to refer you to another little story in the New Testament involving Jesus Christ and little children. It's in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And there we see Jesus' apostles trying to shoo away the little children that are being brought to the Savior's presence. And he's displeased with this. And he says, oh, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. And he gathers them into his arms, 
and gives them his full attention and he blesses them. Jesus liked being around little children. You know, the Savior had so much to endure, so much to do. He was always surrounded by people and their needs and requests and their criticism. You sometimes get a sense of the heaviness of that burden that he carried as you read the New Testament. No wonder he would desire to be surrounded, for a little while at least, by the innocent, joyful, untainted, and healing smiles of those tiny, precious faces. He needed that, and so do we. They are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And yes, it's true that they have no real status, fortune, power, genius, or expertise, do they? I mean, all they can really do is learn and trust and submit. And that's the Savior's point, right? If we ever wonder what we need to do or become in order to return to our Heavenly Father's presence, we need look no further than the little children around us. They're the perfect object lesson for our imitation. So let's go out and be childlike. Next, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I like to begin here with a, a simple discussion question. You might ask your class how they would feel if all of a sudden somebody came along and paid off all of their debts. I mean, your car, your home, your student loans, credit cards, everything. How would that make you feel? And let a few of them share and They'd probably say things like, Oh, that would be such a relief. I'd be so happy. I'd feel like a big weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And then you could ask how you would feel towards the person who did that for you. And how you would react if they asked you for a small favor later on. And of course, they would say, Of course, I would be so grateful to that person, I would be more than happy to do anything that they asked of me. Well, Jesus once told a parable about a man that had something very similar happen to him. Let's see what he learned from that experience and what it can teach us. The parables found in Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Now, if you remember our lesson on parables a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 13, you might recall my three-step process for interpreting parables. One, list the elements of the parable. Two, identify what they may represent. And three, ponder spiritual application. So for the first step of identifying the, the different elements of the story, I'd invite my students to either read the story personally or together as a class or, or watch the following video that dramatizes the parable. Provide you with a link to that video. But however you do it, you can ask your students to identify the different elements. And I'm not going to read the, the entire parable verse by verse with you here. But I'd invite you to pause the video and do that now if you're not already familiar with it. But in this parable, the elements that I would highlight would be the king, the servant, the 10,000 talent debt, the forgiving of that debt, the fellow servant, the 100 pence debt, the refusal to forgive that debt, and the tormentors. Now, the second step would be to identify what each element represents. Verse 35 gives us a little bit of help with the interpretation. The king would represent Jesus Christ or God. The servant would be us. Because I always like to make the parables as personal as possible and try to find myself in the story. And I believe the Lord intends us to see ourselves in the first servant. So you is the answer there. You're the servant with the 10,000 talent debt. And what would that debt represent? Our sins our trespasses, our, our weaknesses and shortcomings. Forgiving the debt would be God's forgiveness of those things, an illustration of His mercy. 
And the fellow servant in the story would be our fellow man. And the 100 pence debt would represent offenses that are committed against us by our fellow man. The ways that they mistreat us or take advantage of us. The refusal to forgive would be our unwillingness to forgive our fellow man. And then the tormentors, you could probably say, represents condemnation. Now you can work from that framework to move to the third and most important step of interpreting a parable. Pondering the spiritual application. What spiritual truths do you feel Jesus was trying to teach us with the parable? And just allow them to share. And you as the teacher should be prepared to discuss their findings or help guide them a bit if they're struggling. You might want to take them to verses 23 and 24 and ask them if they know how much money 10,000 talents is. Now, I've heard a lot of different calculations for how much it is, and I'll even provide you with an example of one of those here. But I'm not going to take the time to walk you through it all because it's kind of beside the point in my mind. Because I don't think Jesus really intended us to break down the economics of it all, or the, the actual dollar amount. This is an example of hyperbole. And all we need to know is that one talent is a lot of money. And that 10,000 talents is an astronomically large amount of money. In Bible times, the number 10,000 was the number that they used to represent a lot. Nowadays, we might say something like, boy, I went to the concert last night and there must have been a billion people there. That would be the comparable expression. Back then, the biggest number that they could think of or when they wanted to say a lot was 10,000. So really, the point that Jesus is making is that this is an unrepayable debt. This man, in, in his condition as a servant, could never pay off this debt. Even if he were to work every day for numerable lifetimes. And that's one of the points of the, the parable here. If the debt represents our sins, or the justice required to justify our sins, then we all owe a debt that we cannot pay on our own. Perhaps this is a way of showing us that none of us can earn our way into heaven. With our works, with our efforts, we all need something from our Father in heaven. And what is it? Verse 27, we need his mercy, his grace. And this parable shows us just how merciful he is. He's incredibly merciful. He's the type of being that's not only capable of forgiving sins, but 10,000 talent kind of sins. Big sins. Many sins. And I love that that verse is so short because it almost seems to suggest that the king forgives this man's huge, astronomical debt. Easily, graciously, and quickly. Like, like, oh, you owe me millions and millions of dollars? Oh, that's okay. You don't have to pay me back. Don't worry about it. And I really do believe that our Heavenly Father is just that gracious with His forgiveness. Just let that truth sink deep into your heart. And you know, perhaps that man in the story isn't meant to represent all of us. Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe he stands as a bit of an extreme example of somebody. I doubt that any of you out there, or any of us, are really guilty of 10,000 talent kind of sin. But why use that as an example? It's meant to give us all hope. If he can forgive 10,000 talent type of sin, then surely he can forgive mine. We would all be covered under the umbrella of that magnificent grace of his. That's something that I would really want my students to understand from this parable. This truth. God is incredibly gracious and merciful. And I don't even think the word incredibly really captures the measure of it. He possesses 10,000 talent type grace. 
And you know, I think it's, it's significant that the man didn't even ask to be forgiven of the debt. He just asked for more time to try and pay it off, even though it was a bit of a meaningless gesture considering the size of the debt. But the king is so gracious and understanding that he forgives the debt entirely. Verse 27 also says that he was moved with compassion. Something really wonderful about those words, moved and compassion. He feels that compassion deeply for us. He's moved by our pleas and our vulnerability. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. To liken the scriptures, you might ask your class, if anybody has ever felt that forgiveness before, encourage them not to, to confess any sins or anything, but just to describe the feeling of forgiveness. Man in the story would say that it felt like being released from a debt of millions and millions of dollars. How would you describe that feeling? What metaphor would you use? That message of God's mercy is only half of the power of the parable. It doesn't end there. We would do well to remember that God's infinite mercy is, in fact, conditional. There are two conditions suggested by the parable. What did the servant have to do to obtain forgiveness of that debt? One, he had to ask for it. Like the king says in verse 32, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. That means just because you asked. And I know I've said this before, but I do believe that that is one of the simple requirements of forgiveness. We just ask with sincerity. But there is one more condition, and the rest of the parable illustrates it. What is that? In verse 28, we're told that the fellow servant of that man owed him a hundred pence. How much is a hundred pence? Answers in the footnotes. It tells us that it was approximately three months' wages for a poor working man. So it's a much, much smaller debt than the 10,000 talents. But, you know, it's not an insignificant number either. I think that's an important point to make. Uh, he didn't make the amount $1 or, or even $100, but three months' worth of work. You know, that'd be thousands of dollars in our in our time. God isn't trying to minimize the offenses that other people commit against us. They are serious. They're difficult to reconcile. But relatively speaking, smaller than what we owe to him. And yet, in the story, the man who had just been forgiven a 10,000 talent debt refused to forgive a 100 pence debt. Therefore, what happened to him? The king's initial grace was withdrawn, and he was delivered to the tormentors. So what is the moral or the truth of the second part of the story? What is the other condition of forgiveness? If I wish to be forgiven of my sins, then I too must forgive others. So the Lord says to us, I am gracious, I'm merciful, uncompassionate. I can forgive both little sins and big sins, 100 pence sins and 10,000 talent sins. And I'll do it quickly, easily, and willingly. But I ask one small thing of you in return. And we say, what is it, Lord? What can I do to thank you? to show my gratitude for your magnanimous mercy. Forgive others, he says. Show them the same mercy and compassion that I've shown you. I love this quote from President Spencer W. Kimball. He who will not forgive others breaks down the bridge over which he himself must travel. 
And one more point here. Immediately preceding this parable, we see a little conversation between Jesus and Peter. Peter asks Jesus a question about forgiving our fellow man. What is that question in verse 21? How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Peter's wondering if there's a limit to this forgiveness thing. Is there a point where somebody has offended me deeply enough or repeatedly enough where the requirement to forgive is waived, no longer applies? And what is Jesus' response? No, not seven times, Peter. Verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And then he tells the parable we just studied. Now, I don't believe that means that I, I keep a little tally book in my pocket and on the 491st time, I shout out with triumph, I don't have to forgive you anymore. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. This was Jesus's way of saying, Peter, always forgive. And if that idea isn't enough, Add the Savior's teachings from Luke 17, 4. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So not only do we forgive 70 times seven, but if someone is to sin against us seven times in just one day, and they come and ask for forgiveness, we're expected to forgive each and every time. Now, that isn't to say that when we forgive somebody that we're condoning their actions or saying that what they did was okay, or we allow ourselves to be put into a position where they can hurt us again. We're not letting them off the hook, so to speak. We're just letting them off our hook and giving their judgment over to Christ because he's the judge that can judge them perfectly without spite, without vengeance with complete knowledge and understanding. Perfect cross-reference for this. Doctrine and Covenants 64, verses 10 through 11. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you it is required to forgive all men. And ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. So the Lord says, I release you from the need to judge. You don't need to worry about it. That's my job. Your job is to forgive. And I'll take the burden of judging and condemning if needed. So we forgive. We put the matter in God's hands and say to that person, let God judge between me and thee. But as far as I'm concerned, I forgive. But I don't even like to leave it at just that. One additional point that I like to make. This commandment is also a reflection of our Heavenly Father's policy towards us. God's never going to ask us to do something that He isn't willing to do Himself. If He expects us to forgive until 70 times 7, then we can expect the same kind of grace from Him. He's also capable of forgiving us 70 times 7, and even 7 times in the same day. Remember the words of the Lord to Alma in Mosiah 26.30. Yea, and as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. There is no limit to his grace. So to liken the scriptures, why do you think the Lord wants us to be forgiving people? And what things have helped you or others you know to forgive? My friends, I do believe that one day, like the man in the parable, we're all going to stand before the king and our account is going to be reviewed. I think we're all going to stand in that debtor's position. 
And I believe that no matter who we are, we're going to owe the Lord much for the debts that we've accumulated all throughout our lives. And at that moment, I hope and pray that I'll be able to say something to my Savior. I hope that I can look into that merciful face and say, Lord, I know that I owe you a lot, and I plead for your understanding and your grace, for I have nothing to pay. But I am pleased to tell you that nobody owes me anything. All debts have been forgiven. I have not demanded payment of my fellow servants. All have been loosed. There is no one locked up in the prison of my heart. All right, next, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps one of the most well-known parables of our Lord. For an icebreaker to this story, I'd have them do the following handout. Chances are your students are going to be somewhat familiar with the story, so it shouldn't be too hard for them to number the pictures from the parable from one to seven in the correct order. So here are the answers. One, the picture of the man leaving on a journey. Two, the man being beaten by thieves. Three, the priest passing by the man. He's the one dressed in white, priest's clothing. Number four, the Levite passing by the man. Five, the Good Samaritan stopping to help. Six, the Good Samaritan arriving at the inn with the injured man. And then number seven, the Good Samaritan paying the innkeeper while the injured man recovers inside. But then there's another section here on the handout for them to complete, which is going to require a little more thought. And here you're going to invite your students to read and ponder the story. Or you could show the church's Bible video of the parable. And then have them fill in the boxes with their answers to the questions. Because if you had to sum up the major theme or topic of the parable of the Good Samaritan, what would you say it was? I would say service. That's, that's where I would focus my attention. And if that's the major theme, then what does it teach us about service? I would consider answering the following four questions. The parable helps us to understand who should I serve? How should I serve? When should I serve? And why should I serve? Have them try to fill in at least one answer to each of those questions based on what they find in the parable. I also provide some help questions for each category to assist them in their pondering, get them thinking. And here are some of my thoughts on these four questions. Number one, who should I serve? And the help question, who was the man to the Samaritan? What, what words describe their relationship? Well, the, the man was his neighbor. Jesus taught in verse 27 that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But the lawyer who's questioning prompts the parable, responds by asking, And who is my neighbor? Because in his mind, he felt the command was to love and serve his Jewish neighbor. So, so why make the hero of the story a Samaritan? Now, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They were enemies. Therefore, who should I be willing to serve? Everyone, even those of different nations, cultures, or faiths, even my enemies. Like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Fascinating that this group of people that the Jews hated, this despised people of the day, would forever after, to this day, be associated with goodness and service. If you were to ask somebody on the street, the first thing that came to their mind when they heard the word Samaritan, what would it be? 
they would probably say, good, the good Samaritan. By making the hero of the story a Samaritan, the Lord was teaching this Jewish man and all of us principles of love, tolerance, and understanding. How else could we answer the question? Uh, we should serve people who need help. We should serve people who are in trouble. We should serve people that can't help themselves. And these two men were strangers to each other. We should be willing to serve even strangers, not just the people that we're familiar with. When should I serve others? Well, when did the Good Samaritan serve? He served immediately. He served when he saw the need. The help question says, what explanations might the men who didn't stop to help have given? If you were to interview them and ask, hey, why didn't you stop and help that poor man? Those answers can then serve as a basis to show the circumstances in which the Good Samaritan was willing to serve. Maybe that priest or that Levite would have said, I was too busy to stop and help. I had an appointment to get to. It was too dangerous to stop. I wondered if the thieves were still in the area. I had nothing to gain by stopping to help. It wasn't my problem. I figured somebody else would stop. When should I serve then? Even when I'm busy. Even when I may be putting myself at a bit of risk. Even when it's inconvenient to me. Opportunities to serve rarely come at convenient times. When there's nothing in it for me. When it's not my problem. When I figure that somebody else can help. These are all times and circumstances when we should serve. How should I serve? And the help question? Is there anything in how the Good Samaritan helps the man that impresses you? He served him diligently. I really love verse 34. Do you see all the ands in that verse? And that suggests something. Look at all the things that the man was willing to do to help. And went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. That's a literary device there. All the ands are meant to slow you down and, and give you an idea of the volume of what's being shared. I also love verse 35. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. How did he serve the man here? He went the extra mile. He didn't just take him to an inn, but he paid so that he could be taken care of in the future as well. He served with sacrifice. He set him on his own beast and paid for the man's care with his own money. He served selflessly. Our last question, why, why should I serve? And the help question, what do you think motivated or did not motivate the Good Samaritan to help? Well, verse 33 tells us that he did it out of a sense of compassion, not out of a sense of obligation. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He didn't do it for praise. He didn't do it because he was assigned to do it. He did it from the heart. It's like he said, here's somebody who needs my help. Can't just leave him on the side of the road to die. Poor man, I'm going to help him. We do well to consider why we reach out to help others. Hopefully, we too are inspired by a sense of compassion. So the truth, I might word it this way, I can seek to serve all at any time, under any circumstance, and with diligence and compassion. Like in the scriptures questions, have you ever had an experience where somebody was a good Samaritan to you? What happened? How did it make you feel? Or have you ever had an experience where you were a good Samaritan to somebody else? What happened and how did it make you feel? So did, so did the parable inspire you in any way this time as we studied it? I don't think I ever come away from that parable without feeling 
like I don't do enough. So many opportunities to serve out there. And often I think I just blind myself to to those opportunities. I get get too wrapped up in my own concerns, my own schedule. But let's see if we can't pour out our oil and wine a little bit more often. To look for those opportunities to give of our pence for the care of our fellow man. Because all of us in some way are on that road to Jericho. That barren and rocky road that is full of dangers. Sadly, there are many in our day that have fallen by the wayside. So maybe the most important question from this parable that we should consider isn't who is my neighbor, but where is my neighbor? If the Lord came and asked us that question, hopefully we wouldn't have to say, uh, the, the last time I saw him, he was out there on the side of the road. Rather, he's safely recovering at the end. That's where my neighbor is right now. The good Samaritan wasn't willing to pass by. And I hope that we could follow the Savior's injunction to go and do thou likewise. Right, one more little story this week. Uh, The story between Jesus and Mary and Martha here at the end of Luke chapter 10. For an icebreaker to the story, I have a very simple activity. I know that it's almost become cliche for youth Sunday school classes, and I hardly ever use it. But you can't deny that it's fun, and people, for some strange reason, seem to enjoy it. But you could begin by playing a quick round of Hangman. And I use the following template to to play this game. But you know how this works. Students take turns guessing letters that they think are part of the secret word. And if the letter appears, they get a chance to guess what the word is. If not, it adds a portion to our hangman's noose. And if they guess too many letters wrong before they figure out the word, then our, our poor little cartoon guy gets hung and the class loses. And then I'll usually give a little treat to the person who figures the word out first. And and in this example here, what's our secret word? The word is balance. Balance. And then I like to ask my students how balanced they feel their lives are. How busy are you? How many different responsibilities and activities do you have on your plate? Do you feel stretched then? Do you feel like you have enough time to relax and recharge? Do you ever feel like you don't have enough time to do all the things that you feel you need to do and want to do and still keep up with your spiritual priorities? And if that describes you, I believe this story can help. To help my students study and ponder the message of this story, I do use the following handout. All of the questions on it are multiple choice. But here's the catch. This isn't like a math test. Thank heavens. There are no correct answers. They're at liberty to ponder each question and choose one of the answers that they feel best represents their thoughts and conclusions about the story. And each question also has an option D, which offers them an open-ended other answer that they can fill in if they choose that, that none of the options represent their line of thinking. And what this kind of activity does is that it, one, gives your students some food for thought as they consider the provided answers, but also allows for their own spiritual insights to surface. And I've found that that can help to to generate more class discussion, even amongst some of my quieter classes that I've taught in the past. After they've completed the handout, you as the teacher can ask any student you wish which option they chose. And then follow it up with a simple why. Why did you choose that answer? It's also fun to ask if there was anyone who came up with their own other answer. And allow them to explain why they feel that way. And usually, those that have chosen the other response are typically eager to share why they thought of something different. And it also allows you as a teacher to share your own thoughts and opinions. Just be careful not to approach it as as if your ideas are the correct ones 
or the best ones, but that you're a part of the class too and you'd like to share some of your ponderings on the story. So allow me to walk you through the questions and share some of my thoughts. One, why do you think Martha was so cumbered about much serving? A, because there were probably a lot of people present. B, because only Jesus was there and she wanted his meal to be perfect. Or C, because she was the type of person that was always busy, always looking for more to do. Or D, other. And personally, I would choose A for that question. Typically, when I've seen paintings of this story, there are usually only three people in the picture. Jesus, Mary, and Martha. Which, if that was the case, then, yeah, I might be tempted to be a little more judgmental of Martha and say, come on, why, why are you so busy? It's, it's Jesus there. But I, I'm not sure that was, that's how it went. I imagine the house was filled with guests. Jesus was always with people. His apostles were with him constantly, and there were 12 of them. Disciples were always seeking to be near him. The Gospels often describe how the people would throng Jesus and, and that crowds would follow him in the streets. Mark 6.31 says that there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Now, we can't know for sure. Maybe the situation was more like B. She wanted the meal to be perfect for him, and so she was putting together all kinds of dishes and trying to make everything just right. But in my mind, I picture a room full of guests and Martha trying to make sure that everybody was taken care of and fed. And then there's Mary over there, just sitting, listening to the Savior and leaving her with all the work to do. Or perhaps this just was a bit of her nature. I think there may be some truth to answer C. Jesus seems to suggest this in his statement, that she was careful and troubled about many things, not just this meal. Number two, how do you picture Jesus saying the words, Martha, Martha? A, with frustration. B, with gentleness and compassion. C, with condemnation. Or D, other. Well, I can't imagine the Savior saying this with anything but gentleness and compassion. There's such tenderness in the two Marthas. Martha, Martha. With great love, pleading mildness. And not, Martha, Martha, for heaven's sakes, sit down and listen to me. Stop, stop being so petty. I, I just can't see him responding to her in that tone. That's not how Jesus worked with people. Jesus loved her. John 11.5 tells us that. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. She was a great friend, and her home in Bethany was a, a haven of peace for the Savior as he sought to escape the chaos and the animosity of Jerusalem just over the next hill. Number three, which of the following statements do you feel best describes how Jesus felt about this situation? A. What Martha was doing was wrong. B. What Mary was doing was better than what Martha was doing. C. Both were doing good things. Or D. Other. Now this question is key for me. I would choose C on this one. And I'll explain why. I think we sometimes read verse 42 like this. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that better part which shall not be taken away from her. But that's not what it says. It says, Mary hath chosen that good part. I think that suggests that both women had chosen good things. Mary had certainly chosen a good part. But I don't see anything in the story that suggests that Martha had done something wrong, or even that she had chosen a lesser part. Is there something lesser about service? Is there something lesser about making people comfortable and trying to provide them with a good experience? And there, was, there was absolutely nothing self-serving in what Martha is doing. She wanted everybody to be taken care of and well-fed and, and happy. Being careful for people is a good thing. 
do you know any Marthas out there? My, my sweet wife is a good example of this. I've often seen her cumbered and careful in service. When we have guests or a social gathering, and she wants everything to be just right, for the meal to be delicious, for everyone to go home uplifted, that's a good thing. So I never like to use this story as an, as an excuse to bash Martha or to call her out as a bad example or to say things like, we all need to be more like Mary and less like Martha. I don't think that Martha's efforts to serve displeased the Savior at all. By the same token, though, then what is the message of the story then? Number four, what do you think Jesus was trying to teach Martha? A. Taking the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet is an important thing to make time to do. B. She should be more like Mary. C. Her priorities were messed up. Or D. Other. To me, A is the lesson that stands out most. I think the main thrust of the story is one of balance. The key word in my mind is needful. One thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part right now. And we too need to seek that balance. In our cumbered, careful, and troubled lives, we also have a need to sit quietly at the feet of the Savior and be nourished by Him. It's needful for us to sit and study our scriptures, to worship and ponder in the temple, to pray, to be alone in nature to meditate, to have lunch with a friend, or to just rest. It's needful for us to have quiet time, free from distraction and busyness. Jesus himself is a good illustration of this principle. There are multiple examples in the New Testament of Jesus taking time away from the busyness of his ministry, just to be alone and to pray. He understood the needfulness of that good part too, aside from the other good part of service and sacrifice. So my last two questions on the handout are more personal, like in the scriptures type questions. So five, if Jesus stopped by your house, what do you imagine he would say to you? A, don't worry so much about tomorrow. B, slow down. Don't be in such a rush. See, we need to spend more time together. Or D, other. Six, to you, what message do you feel the Spirit most wants you to take from this story? A, I need to seek a better balance between service and my own spiritual nourishment. B, I need to make quiet time with God a more needful thing in my life. C, I'm too cumbered, troubled, and careful right now. I need Christ's help. Or D, other. Well, I'd like to conclude with a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley that I feel corresponds perfectly with one of the major messages that I feel I need to take from the story of Mary and Martha. He said, We need to build ourselves spiritually. We live in a world of rush and go of running here and there and in every direction. We are very busy people. We have so much to do. We need to get off by ourselves once in a while and think of the spiritual things and build ourselves spiritually. Think of all the Lord has done for you, how very blessed you are. Meditate and reflect for an hour about yourself and your relationship to your Heavenly Father and your Redeemer. It will do something for you. And so as someone who often feels very busy in this world of rush and go, I plead with myself and all of us to make sure that we take the time to nourish our spirits, that we choose that needful part of rest, spiritual rejuvenation, meditation, and yes, even leisure. The same time that we make it a priority to serve others, and to be anxiously engaged in good causes, and to be careful in our attention to others and work hard, all good things, 
May we seek balance between our Mary and Martha sensibilities and priorities. And that is going to cover it for this week. I hope you enjoyed that, those, those four excellent stories. If you did, I encourage you to share it with somebody else that you feel it could help. Uh, you teachers out there, if you would like access to the handouts and the resources or the PowerPoint slides that I use, you go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Uh, you'll also find the links to the videos uh, down in the video description uh, at the bottom uh, uh, under the video. And I pray that you'll join me next week as well. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.